Good morning. Please stand and sing with us.
Purple, sing the story to 116, please.
Good morning, and welcome to chapel. Let's begin our time together with a word of prayer. Transforming God, you come to us in expected and unexpected ways, desiring to be known, yet remaining a mystery. Make your presence known among us. Confront us. Wrestle with us. Change us through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. I light this lamp today as a symbol to remind us of God's presence with us. Our speaker today will be Jan Stoltzfus uh, Bowler. She has been youth and worship minister at Walnut Hill Mennonite Church here in Goshen for 16 years. She is married to Jim Bowler and has three kids, Jordan, Jess, and Jana, all of whom either went to or are going to currently Goshen College. We'll hear from her after Jana reads us the scripture. Good morning. I will be reading from Judges 11, 1 through 3, and 29 through 40. Now Jephthah, the Gileadite, the son of a prostitute, was a mighty warrior. Gilead was the father of Jephthah. Gilead's wife also bore him sons, and when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah away, saying, you shall not inherit anything in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. Outlaws collected around Jephthah and went raiding with him. Then the spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh. He passed on to Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whoever comes out of my house to meet me when I return victorious from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's to be offered up by me as a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. He inflicted a massive defeat of he inflicted a massive defeat on them from Aror to the neighborhood of Minith, 20 towns, and very far away. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and there was his daughter coming out to greet him with timbrels and dance. He had no, she was his only child. He had no son or daughter except her. When he saw her, he tore his clothes, saying, Alas, my daughter! You have brought me very low. You have become the cause of great, great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. She said to him, My father, if you have opened your mouth to the Lord, do to me according what has gone out of your mouth, now that the Lord has given you vengeance against your enemies, the Ammonites. And she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Grant me two months, so that I may go and wander on the mountains and bewail my virginity, my companions and I. Go, he said, and sent her away for two months. So she departed 
she and her companions, and bewailed her virginity on the mountains. At the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to the vow he had made. She had never slept with a man, so there arose an Israelite custom that for four days every year, the daughters of Israel would go out to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite. Will you pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable to you. Amen. There was a young woman. She was happy. This young woman lived in a gray world. Everything was gray. Her clothes were gray, her house was gray, her car was gray. When she went to work, the building was gray. Everything was gray. The trees were gray, the grass was gray, the sky was gray. Everything, everywhere was gray. Hues of gray, right? Shades of gray, yes, light, dark, but gray. But she was a happy girl. One day, she went to work in her gray car, and at break time, she found herself at a water fountain. And lo and behold, there was a stranger there. And the stranger said hello, and she said hello back, and they began talking, and she mentioned how beautiful the grays were that day. And the stranger said, ah, gray, huh? Gray. But, he, he said, there's more. More? She said, more what? Well, more. There's just more. If you want more, all you have to do is ask. Puzzled, she looks at him. What do you mean, ask? What am I going to ask? Well, start here. Why don't you, tonight before you go to bed, just stop for a minute and say a prayer and ask if you could see more. And so that afternoon, she's really worried all about this and wondering what's going on and what she should do. And, but in the night, right before she goes to bed, she stops for a minute and kind of tentatively and with a little bit of fear, she says, holy and divine one, let me see. And she goes to bed. Well, the next morning when she wakes up, lo and behold, there's red. Red! There's some red on her comforter, little circles, and there's some red on the wallpaper, and she goes to her closet, and there's a red dress that she's so happy to see. She puts it on, and she looks through the world, and all of a sudden, there's all kinds of red mixed in with the gray. There's, her car is red. So she jumps in it, and she goes to work in a red car, and she revels in the red she loves the red, and she hurries to the fountain that day to see if the stranger will be there, and sure enough, he's there. And she says, 
there's red. I love the red. She's, it's been so wonderful. I'm just having such a great time. Red and gray. Oh, and you know, she's going on. And she goes back to work, and she enjoys that red for a couple weeks and so. And then one day, she meets the stranger again at the fountain. And the stranger is smiling and saying, how are you? I'm fine. I just love the red. And, and it is so wonderful to have a red and a gray world. And he said, well, there's more. More? There's more, she says. More. All you have to do is ask. So that night, before she goes to bed, she stands in the middle of the room, and she says with a slightly stronger voice, Holy and Divine One, let me see. And she goes to bed, and she goes to sleep. And when she wakes up in the morning, there, Yellow, yellow, sparks of yellow, wonderful yellow. And she loves the yellow. I mean, there's not a lot of yellow. There's pieces of yellow here and there, but yellow it is. And so she's enjoying and living in a world that is gray, red, and, and yellow. And she is a happy woman. And she lives in that joy. For a while, her red, her yellow, her gray. But sooner than later, she meets the gentleman again. Is there more, she asks. There's more. There's more, he says. And so that night, she goes and stops before she goes to bed. And with this strong confidence, she raises her hand up and she says, Holy and Divine One, let me see. And of course, when she wakes up in the morning, there's blue. Blue. Beautiful blue. Beautiful blue. In fact, the first thing she sees when she looks out the window is this covering of blue all over. It's a peaceful, beautiful kind of color. And this she thinks, must be the end. And so she lives in that blue for a while. And she never really ever sees that guy again. But a few years after this, she starts thinking, I wonder if there's more. I wonder if there's more. And so that night, before she goes to bed, she stops and she says, Holy and Divine One, let me see. And when she wakes up, of course, there's green. <laughs> green all over. You know how the world is. Green, and she's missed it, but there it is. Green. Lots of it. Flowers, plants, grass, leaves. Green, green, green. And this is so wonderful. And all through the rest of her life, every once in a while, she stops and she prays. Holy and divine one. Let me see. And of course, her world becomes full of color. Oranges and purples and greens and yellows and reds and full of color. When I was a child, I thought like a child. I was baptized as a child. I was only nine years old when I was baptized. 
And the first thing they did was put a covering on my head. <laughs> and I was so happy to have it. I loved having a covering. I thought it was cool. <laughs> but over the course of my teenage years, I started to really think about, what does this covering mean anyway? Why am I wearing this on my head? We had explored many things. Sometimes we wore a doily. Sometimes we wore a, a piece of lace, a scarf, whatever. I got to the point where I just thought, I don't really think this is meaningful to me, and I, I, I'm not going to wear it. I didn't have a lot of theological thought about it, but I saw the world in a different way, and I took my covering off. In fact, I did other things, too. I left my home and my family, and I went to a far place. And while I was there, consciously, but somewhat unconsciously, too, I moved into kind of an observation place, a place of observing. And I looked and I thought about it. See, the place I was at, was really different from my home and my land because God was not central to most of the people that I knew and most of the conversations that I had. And in my house, that was true. And I critically reflected on this. And I decided at the end of this time, and I went back, as I went back to my home and my own people, I decided that I was going to participate in the world that I'd always known. I made a commitment. I made a commitment to a God that I had known as a child, but that I wanted to know more and more about. And then I made that commitment in my early 20s. One of the things that I had to deal with was the scripture, because the scripture is the book of the people of God. The Christian people have a book, and I had to know what to do with it. There were a lot of things in there that I had trouble with. I hope the story that you heard today caused you a little trouble. So I started reading it. And I remember one time particularly, I started at Genesis, and I was reading through the Bible. And I had an aha moment. Well, not moment. I had an aha experience because I started recognizing that, hey, the God at the beginning of this story, the God in Genesis and Exodus doesn't look a lot like the God that Jesus talked about. And that, that there was kind of a, what I said was an unfolding of this revelation of God. And that, that, that there seemed to be a connection between what human beings understood and lived, and what they knew about God, or how they understood God. And I went to a friend of mine who was actually studying at the seminary, which I thought was pretty impressive, and I said, you know, I'm discovering this about the scriptures. What do you think about it? And she said, well, she said, you know, there's actually a theology called process theology, and it, it looks a little bit like what you're talking about. I was really impressed with myself. I had found this out on my own, kind of. It wasn't exactly like the process theologians thought, but it was there. And I thought, wow, me, I can read the scriptures and I can discover some really important things that make a difference on how I read. 
Well, in my journey, I continued to read the scriptures. I'd often, I often still do, just read it from cover to cover. And I come across all these stories that I think, what are these doing in here? And the story of Jephthah is one of them. The first time I read that, that was my response. What is this story doing in here? I thought God had gotten rid of child sacrifice. And here it is. And there doesn't seem to be any judgment on it. And it made me fairly angry. One time, when I was reading that story, I had an aha moment. In fact, several times, and I'm going to get to those. Because story, when we read it, from our lives as we experience them, they change. They change. And this story changed for me. The first thing that I learned from that story is there is a sense I was reading the story, and I was angry, and all of a sudden I thought, you can't box God in. You can't box God in. God is bigger and more mysterious and more profound than I myself will ever know. And as soon as I try to figure out what is and is not about God, forget it. That I got from that story. Now, some of you will shake your heads, as one of my professors did in the seminary when I told him that I got that from the story. That's really weird, Jane. But that's really been an important piece for me when I think about what the Bible's about and what the story of God and humanity is telling us. We cannot box God in. And we do try. We like to do that very well. The second thing I learned from the story of Jephthah came a number of years later in the throes of my, probably, uh, my, the throes of feminism. You know, when you really got angry at the patriarchy part of the books and you read these stories and it just was frustrating. And I was reading that story and something profound happened to me. I thought, you know what? This story knows the trouble that human beings bring upon themselves. And this story says there's a place for lament. There's a place for saying to God, what is going on? And to be well our virginity, or to moan about what's happening, or to get so upset about something that we cry out to God and say, why, why? And after we are able to do that, then we move on to action, to right the injustices of the world. Because there is no time in history so far, and there will never be a time in history, when the terrors of human living don't occur. And that there isn't a time when we don't have something to lament. And so that was a gift from this story. The third time this story made a difference to me was when I was really working with Bowen's family system theory. So whenever I was going through the Bible from cover to cover, I've got in my mind, okay, Bowen's family system. I'm thinking about the families, the characters, the, the people that are in there. What? What's going on in their world? What's going on in what formed them in a way? And I read, as Jonna read to you today, that Jephthah was the son of a prostitute and that he was an outcast. 
And then he was brought in and asked to lead a people who had already told him, you're no good. I think he was probably a very mixed-up guy. And so that what he offers to God probably comes to a different place than what I would. And there is an opening of compassion for me. How do we understand the places where all the people in the scripture come from? And how do we understand how everybody that we meet comes out of a different place? This theme of seeing has been a very important part of my journey with God. How do we see? I don't think I'm alone either. I think Jesus talked about that a lot. I mean, I think about one of the very central things that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount is, if your eye is healthy, then your whole body is healthy. If we are seeing well, then we can really see. Or not, I'm thinking of seeing in a broad sense. So there is another point where it says, ask and you will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. There's always more. There's always more. We haven't figured out everything about God. We know that if we look at history, there are many wrong turns that the people of God have taken. God is continually faithful. I have this picture of God. This is how I think about God. That God is always kind of patting us on the head, like a dog maybe, but patting us on the head a little bit and saying, good job, good job, but come a little bit farther. There's more. There's more. I hope that's what you discover. I hope that you discover that there is always more to see. And maybe tonight when you stand in your room, you will say, holy and divine one, let me see. Let me see. Start by singing in the blue hymnal number five seventeen, number five hundred seventeen. Open my eyes that I may see. This song was written about the time that Goshen College was founded, for reference point. It has a nice 6-8 swing. Emily will play an introduction for us, and then we'll sing verses 1, 2, and 4.
verse a cappella. Open my mind. Ready? <laughs> Hear these words of benediction. Guide us, O Lord, by your word and Holy Spirit, that in your light we may see light, and in your truth find freedom, and in your will discover peace through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. You are dismissed. <laughs>